Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. She was a person richly and rarely endowed by nature with talents of a superior order, a temper of unrivaled sweetness and cheerfulness, and a heart overflowing with all warm and good affections. She was graceful in figure and movement, an accomplished musician, well acquainted with several modern languages, well grounded in all the solid branches of a woman's education, save only the arts of housewifery, to which she afterwards attained with pain and difficulty by untiring perseverance, so soon as she was placed in a situation which rendered a knowledge of them essential for the comfort of others. There certainly could not be well imagined a greater contrast than between her single and her married life, but she bore the change with true female heroism, which is made up of resistance to small evils and cheerful courage and patient endurance under domestic grievances. And she had, too, her full share of heavier calamities, not only petty trials, but great ones. She has passed away, and the world has not known her. She has left no memorial but in the recollection of her friends and the hearts of her children, and they will soon disappear as she has done. It may be told for a while in the neighborhood of her and her father's home that a daughter of Thomas Jefferson sleeps by his side in that neglected burying ground at Monticello. But of who or what she was, otherwise than the daughter of Thomas Jefferson, a well-known statesman and great political leader, no tradition will, after one generation, remain. Ellen Coolidge wrote these words about her mother after her passing. And indeed, this prediction proved to be Martha Jefferson Randolph's fate for well over a century. In most accounts of Jefferson's life, even when Martha made frequent appearances, little of her life and personality beyond her interactions with her father was shared. Thankfully, this changed with the publication of Dr. Cynthia Kerner's biography of Randolph in 2012, and her work has been a wealth of information for me as I've worked my way through the Jefferson series. Thus, I'm delighted to share that Dr. Kerner will be joining us for part of this episode to discuss Martha's life and legacy. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Nora Hahn for providing the intro quote for this episode. Nora is an actress and narrator in the Houston, Texas area, and will be performing in a play at the Stageworks Theater starting on April 9th, entitled Mama's Boy. This play is a semi-historical look at Marguerite Oswald and her family, including Lee Harvey Oswald, before and after the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It will be running from April 9th through May 2nd, 2021. So if you're in or planning to be in the Houston area, be sure to check it out. I will have a link to the Stageworks Theater website on the Source Notes page for this episode. One of the regular special features that I had in mind when I began the podcast was to do an episode highlighting the First Lady of each administration. 
With Jefferson, that aim grows a bit difficult as Dolly Madison, who would become first lady in her own right with her husband's ascension to the presidency in 1809, frequently served as a de facto first lady during Jefferson's administration. While not necessarily involved in the day-to-day administration of the president's house, Madison would help organize and host special events for the widowed third president. She would, however, cede this role on the rare occasions that Martha Jefferson Randolph traveled to Washington, D.C. Because of this deference given to Martha during her father's presidency, as well as afterwards, in addition to her prominent role in Jefferson's life, I decided that I wanted to do a special episode on Martha. Before we get into the life of this Martha, though, we must begin with another Martha, her mother. Martha Wales was born on October 19th in the old style calendar, October 30th in the modern calendar in 1748. She was the daughter of John Wales and Martha Epps Wales. We discussed Wales back in episode 3.26, so we won't go much into his life here. The key point for you to know here is that Martha Epps Wales died shortly after giving birth to her daughter Martha. So it is believed that the young Martha was looked after by an enslaved black woman, possibly Elizabeth Hemings, who would later be in a sexual relationship with Martha's father, John Wales. As noted by historian Annette Gordon-Reed, quote, She, Martha, like her father, remained something of a cipher. We know very little about Martha. Indeed, in terms of her appearance, we only have descriptions of her as, quote, an attractive and personable woman, and, quote, a little above medium height, slightly but exquisitely formed. She does not seem to have sat for a portrait in her lifetime, or if she did, the portrait is no longer known to exist. In terms of her writing, only one letter of hers, as well as a document of household accounts, is known to exist. We know that she was musically inclined and well-read. Aside from these brief snippets, all that we have to study of Martha are the facts and figures of her life. She married Bathurst Skelton at the age of 18 in 1766, and a year later, they had a child, a son named John. However, after just under two years of marriage, Skelton died at the age of 24, and Martha was forced to take her young child back to her father's home. Unfortunately, John Skelton was not long for this world either, and died in 1771, shortly after a man from Albemarle County started calling on the Wales household. It's unknown how Thomas Jefferson and Martha Wales actually met, though it seems like Jefferson and John Wales may have become acquainted through business as they shared some common connections. Through stories passed down by the Jefferson family, as well as Jefferson's account books, it seems like the two connected through music, possibly collaborating on pieces together, with Martha playing the harpsichord, Thomas playing his violin, and both singing a duet. A few months into their courtship, Thomas bought Martha a small clavichord, then a few months later purchased her a piano forte. On New Year's Day, 1772, Thomas and Martha were married at the home of John Wales. After two weeks, the newlyweds began to make their way back to Jefferson's Little Mountain in Albemarle County to set up their new home in the house that was still very much under construction. On September 27, 1772, they began to build their family together with the birth of their first child, who would carry the name Martha forward into a third generation. As a child, the young Martha Jefferson would go by the nickname Patsy, so for this portion of the episode, to avoid confusion, I'll refer to her as Patsy and her mother as Martha. As described by our guest, Cynthia Kerner, quote, Like most children of the gentry, Patsy would grow up surrounded by slaves, a few of whom would become familiar to her as servants in her family's house. While some of her early years would be punctuated by the conflict of the American Revolution as her father played a role in it as a civilian leader, including a tenure as governor, that saw him and his family being forced to flee from British forces, by and large, Patsy would grow up in a privileged environment. 
By all accounts, it was, quote, a loving and harmonious household at Monticello for the Jefferson family. And Martha would have numerous enslaved individuals, including the Hemings women and Ursula Granger, to carry out the domestic duties of the household. As noted by Gordon Reed, quote, it is a safe bet that Martha Jefferson did not stir boiling pots of fly to make soap or empty hops into containers to make beer. She may have tried her hand at a few domestic tasks as a lark, but certainly one of the points of having slaves was to relieve oneself of the drudgery of actually having to make a cake or cook the family meal under conditions far removed from modern standards. Martha would have a key role at Monticello, though, to help expand the Jefferson family. Following Patsy's birth in 1772, Martha Jefferson would give birth to five more children in the next decade. Jane Randolph Jefferson was born in 1774, but would only last for a year and a half before passing away. A son was born in May 1777, but would not survive a month after his birth. Another daughter, Mary, who was known in her early life as Polly, but would later come to be called Maria by the family, was born in 1778 and would survive to adulthood, though longtime listeners of the podcast know that she would succumb to a tragic end as well during Jefferson's presidency. Two more children were born in the 1780s. The first, called Lucy Elizabeth, was born in November 1780, but would only last a few months before passing away. A second, also called Lucy Elizabeth, was born in May 1782. As time went on and with each pregnancy, it seems that Martha's health started to decline and the birth of the second Lucy Elizabeth, their sixth child, would prove to be too much for Martha's body to bear. After a four-month period of decline, Martha Wales Skelton Jefferson passed away at 11.45 a.m. on September 6, 1782. While her mother's death would, of course, have an impact on Patsy, from what we know, it seems like they may not have had a close relationship. Patsy wrote years later of her mother that she had, quote, a vivacity of temper that sometimes bordered on tartness towards her children. But this temper did not extend to her husband. He received her adoration, and thus... Her death was especially hard on Thomas. Patsy, at 10 years old, would witness her father going through an intense grieving process, not leaving his room for three weeks. Patsy remained with him during this time, and when he finally started to rejoin the outside world, it would be Patsy by his side on horseback as Thomas rode five or six miles each day in what Patsy later described as, quote, those melancholy rambles. When Jefferson agreed to return to public life once more as a member of the Confederation Congress, while he made arrangements for his other daughters to stay with their aunt and uncle, Patsy would join her father on the road to Philadelphia, where she would, for the first time, be exposed to a world beyond Virginia. The next few years of her life would provide Patsy opportunities for education unlike that which would be afforded to many of her peers. Though less than half of the white men in Virginia at the time were literate, Patsy was, quote, reared in a world of books. Her education would not be the same as if she were a man, but her father both personally supervised aspects of her education as well as made arrangements for others to educate Patsy in numerous subjects. While in Philadelphia, Jefferson arranged for Patsy to have a music tutor, an art teacher, a French tutor, and a dancing teacher. Philadelphia would also see Patsy educated on being an individual outside of familiar settings as, soon after their arrival in that city, it was decided that the Confederation Congress would meet in Annapolis, Maryland, instead of Philly. Rather than uproot his daughter once more after having her settled in to new routines, Jefferson made arrangements for her to live with a prominent Philadelphia family, the Hopkinsons, and left for Annapolis. Patsy would not see her father again for six months. 
She would, however, receive letters from him from afar, instructing her on how she should conduct herself in his absence and on her education, even compiling a quote-unquote plan of reading for his daughter. Philadelphia would just be a taste of what was to come for Patsy, as her father was appointed to a diplomatic mission to France, and he decided that his daughter would accompany him on the journey, as would the enslaved 19-year-old James Hemings. Her time in France would expose Patsy Jefferson to an education beyond anything that most women in Virginia as well as in Europe would experience at the time. Upon their arrival in France, Jefferson enrolled Patsy in, quote, the Abbe Royale de Pantamont a convent much patronized by English people and considered the most genteel in Paris. As described by historian Dumas Malone, quote, there are 50 or 60 pensioners, i.e. students, when Patsy arrived, including three princesses, each of whom wore a blue ribbon over the shoulder. Her father visited her very frequently until she got oriented, and she fell into the life quickly and happily. She wore a crimson uniform, lace behind. She came to be known as Jeffy, and soon could chatter like everybody else in French. As Kerner notes, quote, At the Panthamol, for the first time since her mother's death, Patsy was part of a stable domestic community. She and her classmates slept in four exceedingly large rooms, used another room for their lessons, and had a sixth as a parlor for socializing and other daytime activities. They strolled and played in the vast courtyard inside the convent walls. Some of the friends that Patsy made at the Pentamol would remain lifelong correspondents for her. Despite being immersed in European culture at a pivotal developmental age, Patsy's father was determined, quote, that Patsy's Parisian adolescence would not undermine her American roots and impede her from returning happily to Virginia. Jefferson would often summon Patsy from the convent to have dinner with visiting American women in order to keep her exposed to influences from back home. An even greater influence and a strong tie to her life in Virginia, however, would arrive in July 1787 when the 15-year-old Patsy was reunited with her younger sister, Polly. Polly was enrolled in the Pentamont along with her sister, and with Polly's arrival, Patsy would find her life at the convent changed. As described by Kerner, quote, The formerly gregarious and carefree Patsy now found herself responsible for a skittishly homesick sister she barely knew. They would board together for the greater part of the next two years, but their time at the convent would draw to an end when the two sisters fell ill with typhus and had to be moved to Jefferson's residence, the Hôtel de Lignon, for treatment and recovery. Though they both recovered, Jefferson decided to withdraw his daughters from their studies at the Pentamol in the spring of 1789, and for the remainder of their time in France, they would live with their father in Paris. For Patsy, this meant that she was able to throw herself into Parisian society and attended balls regularly with the enslaved Sally Hemings as her lady's maid. Though it was a time that Patsy would remember for the rest of her days, this phase of life drew to an end quickly as Jefferson decided to return back to the United States. Even beyond the change of location, Patsy's return to the United States would see her transition from childhood to adulthood with a key life moment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. According to one of her friends in Paris, Patsy had flirted with her father's secretary, William Short, but as noted by Kerner, quote, there is no evidence that Jefferson considered Short a desirable suitor for his older daughter. 
When the Jeffersons arrived back in Virginia in late 1789, Patsy renewed an acquaintanceship, which would result in a suitable marriage prospect. Thomas Mann Randolph Jr. was four years older than Patsy, and, as the name suggests, he was also a member of the far-branching Randolph family. Patsy and Tom were, in fact, third cousins and had met at least twice that we know of when they were younger. Since their last meeting, Tom had attended college at first the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, then traveled across the Atlantic to attend the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. During his time in Scotland, Tom had actually carried on a correspondence with Thomas Jefferson, with Jefferson helping to guide the young man on his future prospects. When both Randolph and the Jeffersons were back in Virginia, they met in person again at the Randolph Estate, Tuckahoe. Tom's mother had passed away earlier in the year, so in addition to paying their respects to Thomas Mann Randolph Sr., Jefferson likely would have wanted to check in with the young Tom to get an update and advise him on his future plans. Soon after, Tom visited the Jeffersons at Monticello, and in the course of the visits, he apparently spent some quality time with Patsy as the two fell in love, and by January 1790, Tom had asked for the young lady's hand in marriage, to which Patsy, or as we shall now refer to her as, Martha, agreed. Though still acceptable by the standards of the time, Tom and Martha were both still quite young, and there were often objections to the marriage of two younger individuals taking place too quickly, as had been the case with Tom's sister Judith, with their mother prolonging the courtship between Judith and her betrothed, quote, till they were old enough to form a proper judgment of mankind, well knowing that a woman's happiness depends entirely on the husband she is united to. It must be remembered that, at this point in history, divorce was not an option and married women had very few rights under the law in Virginia. However, neither Tom's mother nor Martha's was alive at that point to object, and both of their fathers, who themselves were old friends, were eager to see the union. Thus, they quickly came to an agreement that Randolph Sr. would give his son a 950-acre plantation called Verena in Enrico County, as well as 40 enslaved individuals at the plantation. Jefferson, meanwhile, would give Patsy 1,000 acres of land in Bedford County, as well as five enslaved families already residing there, and one additional enslaved family from Monticello who would be forced to move to the Bedford County land. Though nominally given to Patsy, their marriage would mean that all of this property would be the property of her husband as soon as she said, I do, which she did on February 23, 1790. The newlywed couple spent the early months of their marriage at the Verena Estate, which is around 10 miles south of Richmond. Being on the James River, the climate was not as favorable as that in the Charlottesville area, and quote, Tom suffered excessive torture from the heat there, even in May. Likewise, neither Jefferson nor Martha liked being so far from one another, and thus, Tom quickly decided that they needed another place to live. Thomas Mann Randolph Sr. had an estate closer to Monticello named Edge Hill. However, Thomas Sr. and Tom did not always see eye to eye, and thus the negotiations over Edge Hill dragged on for months. Jefferson intervened on his son-in-law's behalf, something that drew Tom closer to Jefferson's orbit. However, another complication came up in September 1790 as Thomas Sr. married Gabriella Harvey, a young woman over 30 years his junior. As noted by Kierner, quote, both Tom and Martha worried about the consequences of Randolph's union with Gabriella Harvey, who would certainly bear children who would compete with Tom and his nine siblings for shares of an already debt-ridden estate. In the meantime, Martha became pregnant with her first child, a daughter named Anne, who was born a month premature on January 23, 1791. Thomas Sr. would finally agree to sell Edge Hill to Tom, 
But Tom initially demurred as he tried to determine a feasible plan for managing a farm that provided for his family but used a minimal amount of enslaved labor. After Tom purchased 1,523 acres from his father for $2,000 on January 1st, 1792, and for three years after, he carried through with this plan. By 1795, however, the number of enslaved individuals at Edge Hill over 12 years of age had climbed to 21, and it would continue to climb from there. Meanwhile, as there was no house for the family initially on the Edge Hill estate, Tom, Martha, and their growing family resided at Monticello, with Tom managing his estates at Edge Hill and Verena, as well as carrying out some tasks for his father-in-law while Jefferson was away in Philadelphia. In November 1793, Thomas Mann Randolph Sr. passed away unexpectedly, and as Tom and Martha had worried, his infant half-brother by Gabriella, Thomas Mann Randolph III, had received his family's ancestral home, Tuckahoe, while Tom and his siblings, in addition to receiving a portion of their father's land and enslaved individuals, also inherited a portion of his roughly $64,000 in unpaid debts. This new debt would put a strain on the family, which had grown with the birth of Thomas Jefferson Randolph, who would come to be known as Jeff by the family in 1792. And in September 1794, Ellen Wales Randolph was born. Though Tom was beginning a rise in social status around the same time, becoming a justice of the peace in April 1794, he shortly after began to suffer from an illness that no physician could diagnose. Thus, he would spend a good amount of time the next two years traveling to regain his health. At times, Martha and some of the children would travel with him, such as in mid-July 1795, when Tom, Martha, and the infant Ellen traveled to Western Virginia so that Tom could take in some of the hot springs. This journey quickly descended into tragedy when Ellen passed away suddenly in Staunton, Virginia, the only of Tom and Martha's children that did not survive to adulthood. As Edgehill still had no household for the growing family, in addition to Tom's travels to recover his health, the Randolphs migrated between Verena and Monticello, with Martha and the children occasionally staying at Monticello when Tom traveled alone. Staying at Monticello became more difficult in 1797, as Jefferson initiated a project to deconstruct and reconstruct the home. Though they spent a good portion of the year there, in November 1797, they moved to a nearby farm, Belmont, owned by a friend of Jefferson's, John Harvey, and would remain there until the summer of 1799 when they returned to Monticello. It wouldn't be until January 1800, 10 years after they were first wed, that Tom and Martha would have their own home in Albemarle, a, quote, modest frame house at Edge Hill, a two-story dwelling that measured 18 feet deep and 44 feet wide. Kerner notes that, quote, because surviving family letters from these years include none that Martha and Tom exchanged, it is difficult to gauge how wife and husband interacted or even how they felt about each other. Their family would continue to grow, however, with the birth of another child named Ellen Wales Randolph in 1796, Cornelia Jefferson Randolph in 1799, and in 1801, the year Martha's father became president of the United States, Virginia Jefferson Randolph. By the time her father left office, Martha would have given birth three more times, but we'll talk a bit more about this in our conversation with Dr. Kerner, as well as in the narrative of the Jefferson series as we move along. A couple of other points that we should note about this period before we shift to Act 2 of this episode. Shortly after Jefferson became vice president in 1797, he encouraged his son-in-law, Tom Randolph, whose health had started to improve, to seek elected office. Thus, that spring, Tom ran for a seat in the Virginia state legislature. Unfortunately, as he and Martha had decided to have their children inoculated against smallpox, and both parents stayed with the children to nurse them through the symptoms they experienced. 
Tom did not actually travel around Albemarle to meet with voters and thus lost the election. As we already know, though, this would not be the end of Tom Randolph's political ambitions. Meanwhile, as Jefferson depended more on Tom during his period as vice president to help manage his plantations back in Virginia, Martha was immersed in the various roles and duties of motherhood. Kerner states that, quote, Martha embraced her role as her children's first teacher more enthusiastically than she did any other aspect of motherhood. Her role was key not just for their female children who, as we've discussed, were not typically given as extensive of an education as their male siblings, but also for young Jeff Randolph. While Jeff, quote, attended what he later recalled as old field schools located in the woods in log cabins or meeting houses beginning at age four, ultimately, quote, most schools in Albemarle were irregular and short-lived, and thus what education he and his siblings got would depend on their mother, who was uniquely well-educated for an individual of the age. With all that said, and without further ado, let's shift to the conversation with Dr. Cynthia Kerner. Cynthia A. Kerner is a professor of history at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. She is the author or editor of many books, the most recent of which is Inventing Disaster, The Culture of Calamity from the Jamestown Colony to the Johnstown Flood. Kerner has written extensively on Thomas Jefferson's extended family. Her biography, Martha Jefferson Randolph, Daughter of Monticello, Her Life and Times, won several awards and was also a finalist for the George Washington Book Prize. Kerner lives in Washington, D.C., Her current projects include a co-edited collection of essays on American disasters and a biography of Joan Whitney Payson, a New York City philanthropist and art collector and founding owner of the New York Mets. As with any digital recording, I apologize for any distortions in the sound. However, I believe that the insight that Dr. Kerner provides shines through, and I'm very glad to be able to share this enjoyable conversation with all of you. Thank you so much for joining us. To start with, would you mind taking a moment to share with the audience what drew you to write a biography of Martha Jefferson Randolph? Had you been interested in her for a while, or was this a project that developed out of other research? Uh, That's a really good question, Um, and it's a project that very much developed out of other research. My previous project was a book about a sex scandal that happened in Virginia in the 1790s, and it involved members of the Randolph family, the family that, that Martha had married into. And so one of the people involved was her sister-in-law, who was charged with having an affair with and actually conceiving a child and, and killing the child that was born of her brother-in-law, who was married to yet another of Martha's sisters-in-law. And so this was a really fun project to do, um, but all of the people in it were really pretty horrible. Um, and kind of the only person in that whole story that seemed to me to be sort of compassionate, level-headed, rational, whatever, was Martha Jefferson Randolph. And um, so I got interested in her partly for that reason. And then the fact that uh, she was Jefferson's daughter and left behind, uh, you know, a, a large collection of, of documentary evidence, at least partly for that reason, um, were also good reasons to work on her as a topic. I think that people like reading about presidents and the relatives of presidents for whatever reason. Um, and I, it's also obviously a lot easier to write a book about someone who is left behind 
letters and other papers than about someone who hasn't. With her marriage to Tom Randolph, Martha's already existing ties to the Randolph family were strengthened, though, as you pointed out in your biography of her, that was not always to Martha's benefit. Can you talk more about the Randolph family and their role in both Virginia society in general and in Martha's life in particular? Well, the Randolphs, unlike the Jeffersons, um, had been a very important, powerful, numerous family um, pretty much throughout the entire history of the Virginia colony. After the Revolution, they're still numerous, but they're a lot less influential. They're kind of one of these big, important gentry families that, that didn't really weather the revolution terribly well for a variety of reasons. Um, Most of them, in fact, did support the revolution. There were a few loyalists, but they emerged from the revolution not really interested in the new kind of politics, financially challenged um, because of debt and because of, um, you know, their sort of unwillingness or inability to evolve their financial and agricultural interest um, in different, you know, in a different and, and kind of more, you know, quote unquote, modern direction. So, I mean, for Martha, I think the connection with the Randolphs is, um, you know, in, in her adult life at any rate, kind of a financial burden and also sometimes kind of an embarrassment, um, which is really kind of ironic. I mean, she has good relationships with um, several of her sisters-in-law, even the ones who were involved in the scandal. And I think that that's probably a real boon for her, given the fact that her one surviving sibling, a sister, dies in 1805. So she has she is part of this sort of community of women. And 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 that's a plus. But on the other hand, um, the Randolphs generally and sometimes those women in particular, um, you know, were people who, you know, really needed a place to live, um, really needed some sort of financial support um, at a time when Martha and her husband were doing marginally better, um, although they were repeatedly in, you know, financial predicaments as well. You know, then the whole other side of it is, you know, the the Randolphs as, you know, sort of this collection of kind of embarrassing characters. I mean, you mentioned John Randolph of Roanoke um, in passing. And I mean, I think people who do kind of old school political history um, sort of think of him as someone who just kept getting reelected and reelected to Congress. And, and, you know, it's kind of important for that reason. He was also a whack job. I mean, he he was just absolutely, um, you know, pathologically um, hostile to some of the women in the Randolph family and pathologically hostile even more so um, toward Thomas Jefferson, which is something that, that, that Margaret very much felt. Um, absolutely hated um, Martha's husband in part because he tried to protect his sisters and in part because of his connection with Jefferson. So, um, you know, the Randolphs are this kind of decaying gentry family and uh, marrying into that family, you know, was not a really a great deal for Martha, even though, you know, she did get some personal connections with the women who she, you know, really valued. 
Absolutely. And I think that's one thing that really comes across in your biography, this very difficult relationship between Tom and Martha over the years and how, you know, the larger family structure, you know, whether it's with Jefferson or with the Randolphs, how that kind of fed into the difficulties in their relationship. And and you definitely get that from your biography of her. Taking us back uh, for a moment to uh, Martha's early life, um, one of the things that you discussed in your biography of her was what seems to be kind of three phases of her education. So the first was her initial education in Virginia. Then she, you also mentioned her education while she was in Philadelphia and then her education in France. Would you mind sharing how these three periods of learning differ from one another and the impact that they had on Martha's life? I mean, I think her education in Virginia, which we actually know very little about, um, probably would have been typical for someone of her time and place, of her social stature. Um, you know, she learned how to read and write. Um, she she learned, I'm sure, basic, basic arithmetic from her mother. Uh, she learned, you know, some rudiments of, of, of music, of religion, you know, both of which were seen as things that women kind of ought to know. I mean, she did later in life um, comment that she learned very little about, you know, the domestic arts or domestic skills from her mother, um, which I think is probably, you know, at least partly because this is a family where, you know, enslaved people did a lot of those jobs. Um, Although Martha found herself either doing some of that sort of work or at least overseeing some of that sort of work um, later as a plantation mistress in her own life. But so the Virginia portion, we don't know a whole lot about, you know, and she never really wrote about it much um, either. Um, Philadelphia, we know more about partly because by that point, her mother has died. Um, Jefferson is involved in government and, and she goes north to Philadelphia with him. But She's boarding at a house in Philadelphia, and, and so they're not, they're not with each other. And because of that, she's writing letters to him, and he's writing letters to her, these kind of fatherly letters, basically setting out a schedule of what she's supposed to be doing and when she's supposed to be doing it, and in terms of her studies. Um, and so that we know that she studied music, and, and she liked that a lot, as did Jefferson. Um, she studied drawing, and she hated that a lot. And Jefferson was always on her to, you know, practice your drawing, um, you know, and 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 she really didn't like that. She read, um, she did, you know, kind of, you know, more advanced versions of the kind of intellectual work that maybe she would have begun um, in Virginia. And she also began to learn French, um, which again, was something that was considered a polite accomplishment that you know, even though the overwhelming majority of people in early America never went to France and never met a French person, um, it was considered kind of, you know, a skill or an accomplishment that showed that you were genteel and educated and cosmopolitan and all of that. And in Martha's case, she actually did go to France. So that was pretty cool that she had studied French, um, except that, I mean, one of the things that we learn um, from her early experiences in Paris is that, you know, whatever early Americans thought they were doing when they were learning French, 
they weren't really learning a French that French people could actually understand. So she goes to Paris and Jefferson, again, he's a busy guy. He is a diplomat in France. He enrolls his daughter in a convent school and because, you know, there she would be safe, even though he was a little bit freaked out about her, you know, hanging out with all these Catholics and aristocrats. It was still seen as a, as a fairly safe place for her to be in a scary city like Paris. And um, that is the part of her education that really sets her apart from other women of her era. Um, you know, as an older woman, she, you know, looks back in her letters and basically says that this is the happiest time of her life. She is living in a community of women who are smart or at least educated. She doesn't have the cares of children and domestic work and all of these things that are going to make um, her life more complicated later. You know, she actually turned out to be, you know, a really, you know, intelligent, intellectually inquisitive kind of person. And so the fact that this convent school had a really rigorous education, um, at least for the time, um, was something that she really liked. I think the other thing that she learned about in Paris um, at the convent and also at her father's house in Paris, she learned a lot more about the world and about different kinds of people in that world um, than the average Virginia woman, than the average American woman um, would have known about at the time. And so like, yeah, I mean, one of the things that I, you know, always like to think about, um, you know, when I think about her, you know, at Monticello later or at pretty much anywhere she showed up later, um, she's pretty much always the smartest woman in the room. And she's sometimes the smartest person in the room. And I mean, I think that that in some ways is a good thing, but in other ways, um, it's not. Um, you know, you're stuck on this mountaintop, beautiful, absolutely beautiful, but you're stuck on this mountaintop in the middle of central Virginia, you know, obviously without a car or anything, you know, we would today use to get off the mountaintop and you're thinking about what your life was like in Paris. And so even being isolated in a convent in Paris sort of exposed her to, um, you know, to people and to ideas that in some ways really prepared her um, for, you know, kind of hanging out with her father's friends at Monticello. Um, you know, she wasn't just like, you know, the dumb daughter who would serve the tea. Um, but on the other hand, must have at times been really frustrating for her as well. And always, 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 um, you know, when she has a choice of where she wants to be, later in life, which is mostly after her father and husband have died, um, she chooses to be in cities, which is a very un-Jeffersonian kind of choice. Um, I mean, we know Jefferson hated cities for all sorts of reasons, and, and his daughter didn't. And, and I think that's because of her experiences in Paris. That was really one fascinating thing about your biography of her. Of course, with people who study Jefferson, they acknowledge the strong relationship between Jefferson and, and Martha. But I think you really helped us to understand, you helped the readers to understand what impact he had on her life and in turn, these ways that she became different from him. And, and I think that's a key one right there is that she seemed to prefer the city life, but for so long and for so much of her life, because of family ties, she was still back in Virginia and, and really trying to think of what that meant for her. Well, and I mean, I think, you know, people who do women's history, I mean, you know, routinely make the 
this sort of comment, but I, but I think it's a good one. Um, you know, one of the sayings from the 19th century from Horace Greeley, who was a newspaper man in New York, was go west, young man, go west and grow with the country. Right. In other words, the west is the land of opportunity. And there's a really good reason why they're saying go west, young man. Um, cities are places of opportunity for women. Um, if you have to earn a living as a woman, you're much more likely to be able to do that in a city. Um, if you're looking for social life, you know, whether it's church groups or whether it's something, you know, a little more, you know, kind of intellectually oriented, you're going to get that in a city. You're, you're not going to get that out in the West where, you know, the, where these sorts of institutions and connections are less likely to exist. So, it is. so I mean, I think that in that sense, I mean, she's very unusual in that she had all this urban experience, but in the sense that 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 she preferred it and that she sort of um, flourished in cities, I, I don't think that that's you know necessarily at all atypical. Right. Dolly Madison's the same way, you know. I mean, her husband dies, and you know she's real sad about that. She leaves the plantation in Virginia and ends up living out the rest of her days in Washington D.C., about a block from the White House, actually. And that's one thing that you discussed in the context of Martha Jefferson Randolph. You talked about how those some historians, and I'll, I'll quote you here, quote, generally view Jefferson's administration as a low point in women's political influence. But you saw Jefferson as wanting to integrate women and in particular his daughters into capital society. So would you mind sharing with the audience what role Jefferson envisioned for women in the society of Washington, D.C. while he was president? And, you know, you brought up one woman who was a very prominent figure, far majority, Dolly Madison. But then also, what was the role that Martha played during the times that she was in Washington during her father's presidency? Okay, well, I think it's an overstatement to say that Jefferson wanted to integrate women in generally into Washington society. And if I wrote that in the book, I misspoke. <laughs> um, but I do think that he was very happy to have his daughters there. And part of the reason for that was personal. Um, the other reason, although he never admitted it, I think was political. I mean, Jefferson missed his family. He missed their companionship. Um, he missed his daughters after the, the younger daughter died in 1805. He particularly missed Martha, who he was always close to anyhow. He missed his grandchildren. You know, he missed the family. He missed the companionship. Um, I mean, remember, he, he's a widower. He is in Washington, D.C. by himself. And so I think that when he can have them or later Martha there, you know, he's happy for personal reasons. And then clearly, you know, I mean, once you have your daughter there, you're not going to lock her in a room and say, oh, you know, no one gets to see her. I mean, a lot of people say that, you know, Dolly Madison kind of acted as his quote unquote, first lady, which is like, which, you know, is like wrong on so many levels. I mean, first of all, there's no such thing as a first lady back then. Um, Dolly kind of invents that role when her husband's president, um, although even then they don't call it that until later in the 19th century. And, and I mean, I think historians now think that Jefferson used Dolly Madison and, and other sort of cabinet wives or, or important women, um, you know, periodically um, to help him host dinners. Although mostly, or, or maybe not mostly, but far more often than his predecessors, he was also likely to have um, dinners that, that were just all male. When his daughters were there or when Martha was there, he had the opportunity um, to to have sort of mixed sex dinners. And 
I think that this became politically significant to him as the the sort of um, gossip about the the Sally Hemming scandal sort of flourished, um, which would have been during his second term in particular. And so just like first families today um, are in some ways kind of props for presidents, um, and, and I don't mean that in a, in a kind of, you know, gross or nasty way. You know, I mean, if, if you are there with your loving family, I mean, that, that kind of shows that you, you know, are a man of some moral substance. And, you know, you're, you know, that phrase, a good family man, whatever that means. And so Washington, so excuse me, Jefferson, by having, you know, his daughter and, and her family um, in Washington with him, you know, could sort of project that image um, to the public, by whom I mean mostly the people in Washington who were who were viewing him. You know, at a time when not only is there the whole Sally Hemings scandal, but you know his political enemies, you know, routinely accused him of being an infidel and an atheist, and a, you know all of these other horrible things. You know, Martha, by all accounts, was an absolutely charming woman. You know totally virtuous, totally, you know, sort of well-behaved and, and, you know, and her children were lovely and, you know, all of that. And, and so all of that um, sort of performance flew in the face of all of the nasty things that Jefferson's enemies were, were saying about him. And, you know, so there is one example of Jefferson and his daughters, I think it's when both of them are still alive, going to church in DC in this very sort of public way. I mean, Jefferson was not a churchgoer. Um, I mean, you know, I mean, we know that he believed in God. We know that he he wasn't big on churches. Um, and and but yet, I mean, this is almost like a sort of public procession, you know, virtue on display. Look, I'm a God fearing man. This is my virtuous family. How can you possibly think um, that I'm an infidel? How can you possibly think that I'm having this long running sexual liaison with an enslaved woman? And I think that there's been more scholarship as of late about this idea of Jefferson really crafting his image. And, and I think that you do highlight the role that his family played in that, in, in being able to have this, you know, as you said, quote unquote, family man image. Um, so it, it, it is fascinating. And especially when he, he makes that use of his family when they come to visit him in, in Washington, but then also just the personal having those familiar people, his family around, it makes his life, it, it helps to enrich his life more. You have during his presidency, so many letters that, you know, he, he feels lonely. He feels like he's just working all the time. And you can tell that there is this longing for that life at Monticello and, and that family life that was so much a part of who he was. Well, and the other thing is that they are, I mean, Jefferson in particular, totally, totally worried about illness and death. You know, and so here is a guy whose wife died really young, who, you know, all of his children after 1805 are dead, in most cases, long dead. They die, they're stillbirth, they die in infancy or, or as very young children. And so there's actually one letter that Jefferson writes um, that I use sometimes when I teach. And I can't remember the exact wording, but it's basically a 
one sentence letter to his daughter that says something to the effect that I'm fine. And, you know, I say to my students, why would you send this letter? I mean, this is kind of, you know, a waste of postage, a waste of paper. I mean, why would you do this? And, and I mean, the answer is that, that they really do worry um, about illness, about sudden death, even of people, you know, who are ages that we don't think, oh, you know, they're not old enough to die. So, I mean, one of the things that having people close by does is it sort of insulates you from that potential shock that, you know, oh my God, I'm going home and I expect to see so-and-so and and she's dead or he's dead or whatever. To kind of take us to the other side of Jefferson's life and, and in Martha's life, as we've discussed on the podcast thus far, and you discussed in your biography, um, for the majority of Jefferson's time as president, Martha Randolph was back in Virginia. And as you noted, and, and I'm quoting you here again, quote, uh, Martha never appears to have regretted or resented the decision to spend the bulk of her father's presidency and her husband's congressional career at home in Albemarle. Can you share more about the circumstances that contributed to that decision to remain back in Virginia? Well, I think there are really three things that are going on here. You know, one is the sheer volume of her responsibilities at home in Albemarle County. And, and that would be, you know, her and Tom's plantation, which was called Edge Hill, um, and also Jefferson's plantation at Monticello, where, you know, I mean, she, it's not like she's really in charge at Monticello, but still, I mean, you know, she feels like if the men are going to be away, someone needs to be, you know, sort of figuring out what's going on here. And and at a certain point, she and the children actually moved to live at Monticello because even though it might strike us today as a beautiful, but maybe not too big house for the time. It was actually like really, really big um, and a lot bigger than the house that, that she and her husband had. So the sheer amount of responsibility, both in terms of plantation responsibility and in terms of child rearing. Um, I mean, these people have a ton of children. And, and, you know, Martha is the one who is not only taking care of them in terms of attending to their, their, you know, their physical needs, um, obviously with the help of an enslaved workforce. Um, but she also takes very, very seriously, you know, her responsibility to educate her children. Because again, I mean, this education that she got in Paris is not only something that enables her um, to shine in polite society, but it's also a kind of fungible skill um, a skill that is that is worth something. In fact, you know, her daughters eventually start a school because they have this 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 legacy um, from their mother that that very few people um, in Central Virginia would have had at the time. So that's the first thing: the family responsibility, um, both in terms of the plantation and in terms of the children. Um, the second is the increasingly bad family financial situation, which obviously is related to the first, except that. In addition to, you know, the fact that there's responsibility, the fact that going to Washington um, and getting dressed up and presenting yourself in Washington society um, is a fairly pricey proposition. Um, and in fact, later, um, like 1819, 1820, 1821, they send one of their daughters there um, to Washington. Basically, you know, they hope that she can find a husband there. Um, and there are all these letters that get passed back and forth about, you know, her clothes and how much they're going to cost. And she's going shopping with Dolly Madison, which is probably never going to be a cheap proposition because Dolly knows stuff about style. And, and so 
not so the, the, the going to Washington entails a double cost, both being away from um, the plantations and everything that goes on there, um, but also, you know, what it costs to travel, what it costs to present yourself um, in society in such a way that that, that, that um, is going to like reflect well on yourself and on the family. And, and I mean, Martha's not a huge person for fancy clothes, um, but she is very much aware that the clothes you would wear at a dinner in Washington would be very different from the sort of clothes that you would wear hanging out or even receiving guests um, at a place like Monticello um, or Edge Hill. And then the third reason um, really has to do with politics. Politics were ugly, you know, and the attacks on Jefferson were ugly. And, and, um, this really bothered her. You know, in fact, one of the things I said in the book, I mean, so you write a book about anyone in the Jefferson family and people expect you to write about the whole Sally Hemings thing. Well, you know, Annette Gordon-Reed has done a really good job with that. And I don't know that I'll have anything to add, um, except that it seems to me that, I don't know how to put this, it was much more important to Martha and much more hurtful to Martha that people were talking about her father and Sally Hemings in this way. I mean, I think that one could almost make the argument that what went on between Jefferson and Hemings was almost kind of a secondary issue for her, partly because, you know, Sally Hemings wasn't going to get an inheritance and there wasn't any inheritance left after Jefferson died anyhow. Um, but it seems to me that, that the gossip um, about Jefferson and about Hemings and about him being an infidel and, and I mean, all of this other stuff was really, really hurtful. And, um, you know, she didn't have to be there to hear that stuff. And, and I think her preference was not to hear it. And I guess also not to expose her children to it. One thing that you know, we we think of modern times and how personal political attacks can get, but we see like even in the early republic, it could get very personal and families were hurt by that, you know, and, and I think you do a, a great job in, in your biography of kind of helping us to understand how Martha would have viewed this and, and how hurtful it was to see her father kind of dragged through the mud with political attacks. So, yes, absolutely. Kind of going back to that life on the plantation and and back at Edge Hill and Monticello, um, one subject that you come back to at multiple points in the biography is how throughout her life, Martha was intimately connected to and dependent on slavery, despite her expressed anti-slavery viewpoints. Can you talk about this dichotomy in her life and whether this is representative of the experience that other white plantation mistresses in Virginia at the time would have experienced? Okay, so her anti-slavery viewpoints, um, I mean, clearly, if you're writing a biography of a Southern woman of this era, you are going to scour her writings and anything else you can get your hands on to see what she has to say about slavery and enslaved people. We are fortunate in having a couple of juicy quotes from Martha, one from when she was in Paris and maybe one or two later, where she basically says that she's, you know, she thinks slavery is a bad thing. We don't have any quotes from her saying slavery is a good thing. And so that's great, you know, but, but I mean, you know, I would, you know, sort of say that, that given the enormous corpus of written material we have from her, 
two or three anti-slavery comments is not a lot, right? But it's something. The other thing that I would say is that the kind of anti-slavery comments that she makes are in some ways typical of Virginians of her generation and the same sort of thing that Jefferson would say and that he does say, for instance, in Notes on the State of Virginia. And, and that's two things. First of all, slavery is a quote unquote necessary evil, which on the one hand, necessary, come on, seriously. But that's a really different thing from what people are saying, say, in the decade before the Civil War, where you have people saying in the South, oh, slavery is a positive good. Um, Jefferson and his family would never have said that. On the other hand, when you read what white people have to say about slavery during the kind of revolutionary and post-revolutionary period, most of their anti-slavery comments have a whole lot more to do with the bad impact of slavery on white people than on black people. So Martha isn't saying, oh boy, slavery is awful. These people are suffering. This is horrible. It's inhuman. How can we do this? And by the way, it's not that nobody in Virginia was saying that at the time. You know, her sister-in-law, one of the ones involved in the scandal, her husband, the guy who was involved in the scandal, writes this incredible last will and testament where he basically talks about slavery being barbarous and the sins of his ancestors and and basically frees all his slaves, gives them land and and you know it becomes this whole big thing. Um he's really an outlier, but still, I mean there are some people who are making the argument that slavery is bad and it's bad for black people and we need to do something about it. That's not what Martha's saying. It's not what her father is saying. For them, slavery is bad because it makes white people lazy. Um, it makes white people violent. It um, you know, creates kind of potentially complicated or problematic sexual situations, right? Um, and so I think that in a lot of ways, what Martha and her father have to say about slavery is not that unusual for their time and place. What is unusual is that we have the written evidence, particularly in their private writings, where they're where they're talking about these issues. But again, not often. I mean, this is not this is like, you know, the sort of thing that, oh, she's talking about slavery. I got to write about this. You know, that means that 99.9% of the time she's not. And that and that's that's important. I think you hit on an important point there. You know, there are a couple of, of instances of her saying that slavery is wrong, but then in her actions and in Jefferson's actions and the actions of other family members, um, and I'm thinking of, and, and you brought up Annette Gordon-Reed earlier, in her research of the Hemingses and how you know, Jefferson and Martha and the family talked about they didn't want to separate families, but then children would be given away as wedding presents. Right, right, right. And yeah. and separate it from their families for the rest of their lives. And in their actions, you see the few words that we have that slavery is wrong in their actions. You don't see that. Well, and there's one particular episode that, that, I mean, was really hard to parse. And, you know, there's, so there's this whole literature now about white women in slavery and 
you know, are white women kinder than white men toward enslaved people and this whole sort of debate. There is one instance in the family letters where Martha and some of her daughters are living in Washington, D.C. And basically, I mean, these these are, you know, white women who are trying to live in the city and, and their entire income is hiring out enslaved people. What little they have from Jefferson's estate um, is in the form of human capital. And it was common practice for, for women in particular um, to rent out their slaves and, and get income from that. And that was the way they live. But I guess they, they kept some of the enslaved people working in their house. And at one point, one of them had done something really bad. I mean, well, supposedly really bad. They never said what it was. And they had a, they decided to whip this person. Um, but apparently, you know, in cities by that time, um, if you were a genteel white woman and you didn't want to do the whipping yourself, there were places that you could send the enslaved person and hire someone to do the whipping for them. And it's this really interesting exchange of letters within the family where Randolph women are, they're kind of joking about this, but you can tell not really. I mean, they're also kind of, they're kind of joking, but they're kind of appalled and they kind of, they don't know what to do with that. But it's, I mean, it's the only, you know, sort of documentary evidence that I have that that they would have engaged in this sort of brutal punishment. And I don't know what the person did to, to warrant this sort of punishment. But, you know, I mean, it it, it just sort of, shows that, you know, even in a city, even among people who, you know, will on occasion say anti-slavery things, one of the daughters moves to Massachusetts and, you know, she's she's very kind of happy about that in some ways. Um, they're still, you know, they're complicit in this this brutal system. Um, and and, you know, sometimes they're not comfortable with that. Um, but on the other hand, they do it anyway. One thing that you've mentioned um, a few times and that I wanted to bring up in our conversation, and um, I'm sure this is not going to come as a big surprise for listeners of the podcast that I'm often reading the end notes of works. Um, so in one of your end notes, you wrote that, quote, because it was common for people not to preserve family letters and women's letters, especially writing biographies of early American women who lack connections to famous men who were also prolific correspondents is difficult and rarely done. As a scholar who focuses her work on women and gender in early America, would you mind taking a moment to talk about how having so many primary sources from which to draw with Martha Jefferson Randolph impacted your approach to this work versus other research that you've done on women in early America? Well, I mean, the big difference is that we have Martha's voice, right? In other words, we don't just have like, say, maybe court cases saying that, oh, this woman did this and she's getting this punishment. Um, or we don't just have maybe a newspaper article describing, you know, the appearance or the activities of, of you know, a woman who, for whatever reason, is being mentioned in the newspaper. We actually have her voice and we have her voice um, in private correspondence, you know, which is likely to deal with topics like, you know, sort of family and work and things like that, that, that would not necessarily be dealt with in public documents where you sometimes get women's voices. I mean, my personal favorite are um, 
legislative petitions uh, where people basically they're they're asking for the fa- a favor from a, the state legislature, um, and in order to get that favor, they have to tell their story, they have to explain their grievance, explain their situation, um, and that's sometimes a really good way to get the voices of non-elite women. But still, I mean, a lot of the topics that people are likely to write about in their private correspondence you don't have for most women. And so, you know, for instance, there's a chapter in my book that is essentially about her life as a plantation mistress. And, um, you know, I mean, we have plenty of her insights about work and about taking care of the family and about educating her children um, that are not just sort of, you know, things that I'm inferring from a larger context, but we actually have her voice talking about them, which is which is kind of a big deal. And so, I mean, I guess, you know, one of the ways that, that having these documents change my approach then is, is by being able to feature her voice um, as opposed to just saying, well, you know, gee, um, this is what Virginia was like. So this is what Martha might have experienced. And, you know, unlike the Scandal at Bizarre book, which, I mean, I just really got taken with that story. It just struck me as such an amazing story. When in fact, um, you know, there are only, I think, like maybe four documents that anyone ever mentions that what happened at Bizarre, which was actually the name of their plantation, directly. And so the rest of that book, it, 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 although I have letters from people who were involved in it, including Martha, they're never talking about it. So most of that book then is context. Um, There's a project that I'm working on now um, that's about this North Carolina woman during the American Revolution, who the way I know about her is years ago in the archives, um, I ran into three legislative petitions that she submitted basically to get compensation um, for various things after the war was over. Um, her husband was a Tory. She was a Whig. In other words, she supported the revolution. And she's got this great language where she's saying, "I, you know, you need to give me the common rights of other citizens. Women just did not say that back then. So I've been thinking about this woman for 20 years, and, and I just got finished writing the second of six chapters of the book. And, you know, I mean, I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, wow, I'm totally making this up. All I have are these three petitions. But I mean, I think that if you are an experienced historian and you're immersed in, you know, whether it's the history of the American Revolution or the history of, you know, Southern women during this period, um, that's possible. I mean, in a way, writing the book about Martha was a whole lot easier because I really didn't need to do that quite as much. And for anyone who reads the book, you will notice several things about it. First of all, the first chapter is shorter than all of the others. And secondly, if you look at the endnotes, as you apparently do, Jerry, you would see that most of the endnotes um, really have very little to do with Martha and even very little to do with the Jefferson family. And it's all about context because obviously Martha isn't writing letters as a four-year-old. She's not getting letters as an eight-year-old. Um, you know, and the family is, they're living together. They're not writing letters to each other. So it becomes comes more about context and less about voice. I mean, you know, the first letters that we have from her are those letters that she writes to her father when she's in Philadelphia, you know, when she's like 11 or something like that. But e- but even that is really unusual. I mean, you re- rarely get letters from people until, you know, they're adults because then they leave home. And, and in the case of kind of more obscure families and certainly more obscure women, 
you don't get any letters at all that, that are saved. I mean, this is like, who would save this? It's a letter from mom. Who's going to care about this? You know, and, and, and they're just not saved. I mean, I think that's different now. But, but I mean, that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, the so-called founding fathers and these, these big papers projects, the Washington papers, the Jefferson papers, the Madison papers are such great sources um, because they're letters that are written to and from these people. And as a result, they include letters from all kinds of people. Um, you know, one of my favorite people that, that Martha actually got to know quite well in Philadelphia and, and who remained friends with her and friends with Jefferson for their entire lives was this woman named Martha Trist. And um, I mean, God, this woman was, she was really, I mean, she would basically, she would write political letters to Jefferson, which I mean, women just didn't do. She's like, yeah, I'm going to write about politics now. I mean, she always agreed with his politics, um, which I guess is one of the reasons why it was okay for her to write about politics. But she was very outspoken, absolutely fascinating woman. And one of the ways that we know about her is that she happened to have this sort of off, on again, off again correspondence um, with Jefferson and his family. So these are great projects and great ways to get at some of these other women, but obviously, if you're a wife, if you're a daughter, there are going to be a lot more of your letters there. And also with that idea of the private sphere versus the public sphere, you know, thankfully, in the case of, of Martha, we have her letters. But in other cases, like, you know, Martha Jefferson, uh, Jefferson's wife, that correspondence, whatever existed, is lost to us. We've had other instances, uh, George and Martha Washington, right. where their correspondence is lost because it was felt that, that that private sphere needed to remain just that private. But it is so enriching to understand the lives of individuals at the time to be able to, when we do have these large troves of letters that we can draw on. Absolutely. So as we're wrapping up our conversation and, and our discussion of, of Martha Jefferson Randolph, you noted at the end of the biography that, that, quote, modern readers should view Martha in a somewhat different light than she was viewed in the 19th century. In your research on her, what one thing stood out to you as a key takeaway from her life and legacy? And was it something that her contemporaries would have understood? Or is it something that becomes clear with the benefit of hindsight? Oh, I think that, that, you know, the one thing that just became really obvious to me is that, you know, being a child of a famous and much admired man was, as they say, both a blessing and a curse. I mean, a blessing, obviously, in that she got to go to Paris. She got to go to Philadelphia. She got to meet all these famous and interesting people. I mean, imagine being stuck on top of that mountain without all of the interesting people coming to visit. I mean, and, and you know, just being surrounded by work and children and debt. Um, I mean, you know, she got to hang out with Lafayette. She got to hang out with the Madisons and 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 with you know some of these other people. I mean, having all these guests was obviously a lot of work as well, but particularly for someone who was so you know intellectually alive, it, it, that was an enormous benefit of of being 
um, you know, sort of Jefferson's right hand woman and, and, you know, kind of being his hostess when, when people, when people showed up. So the education and the, the, the personal relationships um, and those kinds of opportunities that she received as a result of, of being Jefferson's daughter um, later, you know, getting to have dinner with Andrew Jackson in this big sort of celebration, you know, on the other hand, um, I think people at the time, you know, always sort of honed in on that, that, oh, you know, boy, you're the great man's daughter. You're so fortunate. He is wonderful. He's, oh, you know, all of this kind of stuff. Um, When in fact, I mean, there were parts of Jefferson, um, if you lived with him up close and personal, that that were a lot less wonderful. Um, Not the least of which he was pretty horrible at managing money. um, And he died deeply in debt. And, And so, you know, when in fact he died, you know, they have to sell Monticello, they have to, you know, liquidate the family's enslaved workforce. They have to, you know, they have to do all of these things. They are, you know, truly, you know, living on a fixed income. And although, you know, for most people at the time, they still live pretty well um, compared to what they were sort of um, reared to expect their lives to be like. Um, It was really quite different. And you know, I don't think the curse was necessarily that Jefferson went broke. I mean, a lot of people went broke, but the curse was kind of, um, first of all, you know, as a woman, not being able to do a whole lot about that um, or about her husband's sort of financial and drinking problems. Um, And also the fact that other people I don't think really realized that, you know, being the daughter of Thomas Jefferson, you know, wasn't entirely the kind of awesome, wonderful experience that that they might think it was. And I do think that today we, you know, because our culture of celebrity is so much more developed, I think we today have a better sense of that. Um, You know, I mean, I think about the Obama girls and, and how hard their parents worked to sort of shield them, um, you know, from the public and and from, you know, all of the stuff, all the crap that comes with being, you know, the child of someone famous um, who is, you know, much admired and adored, but also, you know, in Barack Obama's case, and also in the case of Thomas Jefferson, um, you know, sort of hated and distrusted by a lot of people as well. And I think that that's, you know, one thing that that we recognize today. I mean, even, you know, people who write about, um, you know, the wives of famous men in the 18th century um, and early 19th century, like Martha Washington, like Abigail Adams. I mean, I think, you know, the smartest work that is being done on those sorts of people, you know, who did have happy marriages and who were the wives and not the children of their, you know, very important, significant others. I mean, I think, you know, the smart people who were working on those kind of lives, you know, are, are, you know, sort of aware enough and honest enough to show the kind of downside of that relationship, as well as the, the kind of more obvious upside that we've always known about. And I think in your biography of her, you really do help the reader to understand the opportunity 
opportunities, but also the pitfalls involved with being Jefferson's daughter. And you help to bring Martha to life as an individual and not just be Jefferson's daughter. So I can't thank you enough for your work on this biography. I can't thank you enough for being here and sharing your insight with the audience. Before we let you go, I wanted to ask you, you had mentioned briefly a current project that you're working on, um, but would you mind sharing with the audience kind of where your, your research is taking you now? Well, I'm working on three projects, all of which are wildly different from each other. My last book was actually sort of a history of the idea of disasters. Um, It's called Inventing Disaster, the Culture of Calamity from the Jamestown Colony to the Johnstown Flood. And um, I am co-editing a collection of essays um, on American disasters with three other scholars and, and my contribution um, is an essay on exploding steamboats, which apparently were everywhere and quite spectacular um, in the early 19th century. A second project is the one that I alluded to earlier about this North Carolina woman during the revolution. And that's the one that, that, that I've been working on mostly. And then the other project that, that I kind of play with um, when I have the chance, but, but eventually it is going to be another biography, a biography of Joan Whitney Payson. Um, who was a New Yorker, a philanthropist, an art collector, um, really big in the horse world, but most importantly for me, the founding owner of the New York Mets. So there you go. Variety is the spice of life. So (laughs) it's good to have those different projects. Indeed. Well, we look forward to seeing all of those. And thank you so much again, Cindy. Um, This has been a great conversation and look forward to reading more of your work. It's been lots of fun. Thanks a lot, Jerry. I cannot thank Dr. Kerner again for her time and insight. As I said before, we'll be getting into more of the details of Tom and Martha's time during Jefferson's presidency as we continue through the series. But the important thing to know about the Randolphs, as Jefferson concluded his second term, is that their situation was troubled. Martha's in-laws and the Randolph family were one by one becoming financially insolvent, and Tom and Martha were not much better off. Martha worried about both the economic and educational well-being of her immediate family. Jeff had grown to the age to enter university, and both Tom Randolph and Thomas Jefferson were determined that Jeff would have, quote, a first-rate education. Martha, however, was concerned about Jefferson's offer to pay for his grandson to study at the University of Pennsylvania. She, more than anyone, realized the deficiencies of his education, writing to her father that, quote, His, Jeff's, education is too backward, I'm afraid, to enable him to profit by any instructions conveyed by lectures, and his indolence so great as to render it doubtful whether he can be trusted to himself as much as he would be away from home. Further, she knew her father's financial situation was not that stable and hadn't been for a while. Still, ultimately Jefferson's desire to aid in his grandson's development prevailed, and Jeff Randolph set off from Edge Hill in October 1808 and, after visiting with his grandfather at the president's house, went on to the university in Philadelphia. Meanwhile, Tom and Martha's oldest daughter, Anne, married at the age of 17 to Charles Louis Bankhead at Monticello in September 1808. The next generation of the family was setting out into the world as the patriarch retired back to his mountain. Jefferson, however, would not be alone at Monticello. After Tom's time in Congress and continued struggles to make his financial situation profitable, he began to look at selling some assets in 1809, including the Verena estate that Kerner describes as, quote, 
the valuable but heavily mortgaged plantation in Enrico that had been in his family for generations. As Tom sought to gain control of his situation, by virtue of where his family was primarily residing, he found himself out of control, for Martha had, by and large, moved her immediate family to Monticello following Jefferson's return in March 1809. As Kerner notes, there are practical reasons for this. As Jefferson's work on the house was largely done by the time of his retirement, the physical structure, which was 11,000 square feet total, provided much more room for the large Randolph family than the comparatively modest house at Edgehill. For the Randolph children, the extensive library that Jefferson had amassed at Monticello would aid in Martha's efforts to educate her children. Meanwhile, Martha's presence would help her father in managing his household as well as, quote, enhance his public image as a respectable family man and discredit persistent rumors about him and Sally Hemings. For Tom Randolph, however, the situation was less than ideal. Again from Kerner, quote, Tom's status at Monticello was ambiguous, but at the same time, vitally important. As he had for a while, Tom could help Jefferson in managing his operations while at the same time commuting over to Edge Hill to oversee things there. In terms of his public career, Tom was an officer in the Albemarle County Militia and was a possible candidate for the Virginia State Senate in 1810, thus suggesting that he was seen by folks in the area as, quote, one of the leading men in Albemarle. However, Jefferson was clearly the head of the family, not Tom. Again from Kerner, quote, unlike his wife, Tom had no specific responsibilities at Monticello and played no obvious role. Jefferson provided food, shelter, and amusement for Tom's wife and children and he paid for the schooling of his eldest grandson. In a patriarchal society, one can imagine how this would cause a strain in the relationship between Tom and Martha. Despite Tom's best efforts, and, as his biographer William Gaines Jr. credits him, quote, his efficiency as a cultivator and his real talent as an agricultural innovator, Tom was unable to make his farms profitable, nor, as it turns out, was he able to find a buyer for Verena. He did, however, in 1810, sell the property in Bedford County that had been Martha's dowry for $10 an acre. Meanwhile, the War of 1812 afforded Tom an opportunity to pivot to military service as President Madison appointed Tom Randolph as a colonel in the U.S. Army in command of the 20th Regiment of Infantry. As Tom recruited soldiers and prepared to set off from home for this new service, the family's problems continued to compound. Anne's marriage to Charles Bankhead was not going well. Charles had abandoned his study of law to become a planner, but like Tom Randolph, was finding little success in that pursuit. Meanwhile, he was gaining a reputation for, quote, frolicking and carousing at the taverns. This marriage would cause the family no small amount of anxiety and stress over the years. Meanwhile, after giving birth to Meriwether Lewis Randolph in 1810, three years later, Martha was pregnant once more with her 11th child, Septimia Ann Randolph, who was born in 1814. Martha's pregnancy made Tom think again about whether he should take up his military command, both due to the fact that the pregnancy had been quote-unquote uncharacteristically difficult for Martha, and the fact that going off to war would put his life at risk and his death would throw a family already teetering on a financial wedge over the cliff. Ultimately, when Tom's orders to proceed to Sackett's Harbor on Lake Ontario came in the fall of 1813, Colonel Randolph and his troops made their way north and Martha was left to deal with the problems of the family and the household on her own. With Tom away, Martha worked the family connections in an attempt to get her immediate family back on firmer financial footing. She traveled with her father to visit President Madison and his wife, Dolly Madison, at their estate, Montpelier. And while there, 
Martha made an appeal for Tom to be appointed some federal position which would pay better than Tom's current military position and keep him out of harm's way. Thus, Madison agreed to appoint Tom as collector of the federal revenue for the congressional district in and around Albemarle. Tom learned of this appointment when he returned on leave in December, but if Martha thought he would be pleased at the prospect, she would find him quite the contrary. In addition to his feelings about taking a position, quote, that he received mainly because the Madisons felt sorry for his wife, Tom expressed to the president his fervent desire to pursue his military career. Ultimately, though, Tom would resign his commission in the spring of 1814 in order to be closer to home to deal with personal business. Tom's time away, though it, quote, won him the respect and esteem of like-minded men in Albemarle and beyond, did not bring him any great martial glory, and instead only made Martha, quote, miserable, anxious, and sickly while he was away. Meanwhile, any role in assisting Jefferson at Monticello that Tom had previously played was now instead being met by Tom's son, Jeff Randolph. As Martha had predicted, Jeff's studies at the University of Pennsylvania had not gone well, but his return to Monticello meant that, when his father went off to war, quote, 21-year-old Jeff assumed responsibility for the gristmill at Monticello and proved himself quite capable. Thus, by 1815, Jefferson had turned over many of the duties of managing Monticello and his other farms to his grandson. That same year, Jeff married Jane Hollins Nicholas, and both became integral to life at Monticello. As her oldest children were having children of their own, Martha Jefferson Randolph had her last child in March 1818, George With Randolph. In total, Martha had, from 1791 to 1818, given birth to 12 children, only one of whom did not live to adulthood. With Tom safely back in Virginia, Martha was able to turn her attention in the late 18-teens more to finding marriage prospects for her daughters Ellen, Cornelia, and Virginia. In this, she was aided by their aunt, Mary Randolph, as well as Dolly Madison, who respectively invited the girls to Richmond and Washington to mingle in the social scene there to meet eligible bachelors. Despite spending money the family didn't have to fund this travel and the proper clothing required for balls and social events, the Randolph sisters found themselves still single. Finally, in 1818, the 18-year-old Nicholas Trist approached Martha to ask for her daughter Virginia's hand in marriage. But though this had been the ultimate goal, whether due to her own experience, her daughter Anne's troubled marriage, or other instances that she had seen of people marrying too young, Martha requested that a formal proposal be delayed for a bit until after Nicholas completed his studies at West Point, to which the young man agreed. As the decade ended, though, Martha had more to worry about with her health than with her children's marriage prospects. Starting in May 1819, Martha fell ill and spent the next two years, quote, suffering from debilitating headaches, which may in part have been a hereditary condition as her father also suffered from severe headaches at times of stress during the course of his life. As Martha wrote in 1822, quote, For more than two years, I have been in that state between comfortable feelings and positive illness, which necessarily induces apathy, listlessness, and all those idle propensities that unfit us for the proper discharge of our duties. Despite her illness, she continued to carry out numerous regular tasks at Monticello, one of the most important of which was her role as her father's gatekeeper to deal with the, quote, growing number of Jefferson's admirers and colleagues who trekked to Albemarle to see the aging statesman. As many of her children were growing older and many of the young ones were sons who would be sent to local schools, Martha's role as an educator for her family lessened, and her older daughters were able to take up some of their mother's duties and, quote, overseeing the enslaved workers who cooked, cleaned, and did other domestic work. 
Despite the economic downturn known as the Panic of 1819 and its detrimental impact on Jefferson, the Randolphs, and many members of the white planter class in Virginia, Tom Randolph decided around the same time to return to public life and in the spring of 1819 was elected to the Virginia State Assembly. When he assumed his seat in December, Tom was chosen by that body to be the next governor of Virginia. Due to the costs that would be incurred by moving the family to Richmond and maintaining a separate household in the governor's mansion, Martha and the children initially remained at Monticello. A year after his first election, though, Tom had convinced Martha to come, and thus she was present when her husband was elected to a second one-year term as governor. As noted by Kerner, quote, Much as Martha had reflected favorably on her father during his presidency, she was a very popular addition to Richmond society, an asset whose presence helped to soften the hard edges of the irascible governor. Though she initially enjoyed the experience, it seems that Martha did grow, quote, to tire of her hectic social schedule. After three years as governor, Tom left that office to return to a seat in the Virginia State Assembly, as well as the work of stabilizing his financial situation since, despite the fact that he earned $10,000 during his tenure as governor, he was still deeply in debt. The early 1820s, however, did at least see two of Tom and Martha's daughters happily married, as Nicholas Trist finally made a formal proposal for Virginia's hand in marriage, while Ellen met a young man, Joseph Coolidge, while he was visiting Monticello to meet her grandfather, and the two wed in 1825. Despite this bit of good domestic news, overall, the situation for the Randolphs continued to worsen. In early January 1824, Martha learned just how bad the situation was. Tom was in debt to the tune of over $33,000, and the creditors were starting to get anxious. In a bid to help his father and family, as well as to hopefully preserve part of the family's property, Jeff Randolph assumed his father's debts in April 1824, quote, in exchange for a deed of trust for Edgehill, Verena, and the enslaved people who resided on those properties. But this would only serve to further damage the relationship between Tom and Jeff, as well as the marriage of Tom and Martha. To Tom, it was bad enough that he had been forced to rely on his father-in-law's support for so many years, but now his son would control his property and financial business and would take steps that Tom himself would never have considered. In order to meet the family's debts, Jeff sought to sell Edgehill, the estate on which Tom had worked for so many years to make profitable. At the very least, this new arrangement and reordering of the balance of power resulted in some passionate verbal altercations between father and son, if not physical violence, as there is one account in the annals from a contemporary who reported, quote, seeing Randolph beat his adult son with a cane. By the autumn, Tom had had enough and left his wife and family at Monticello. Though he returned early the next year, as Jeff had managed to finally sell Verena and then found a buyer for Edgehill, Tom and Jeff ended up in opposition once more, with Martha taking a more practical view of things and supporting her son's efforts, despite her husband's objections. In August 1825, Tom left Monticello once more, and, as noted by Kerner, quote, Martha and Tom never lived together again as husband and wife. As part of the liquidation process, the enslaved individuals from Edgehill were sold at a public auction in Charlottesville in early January 1826. As discussed in episode 3.26, the episode on the Hemings family, it would not be long before another such sale of human beings would be arranged upon the death of Thomas Jefferson in order to pay his extensive debts. Though at times protesting the enslavement of other individuals, Martha and the Randolph clan did not let any high-minded ideals get in the way of pragmatic opportunism and were responsible for the separation of families through the selling or gifting of enslaved individuals to others. 
Even those individuals who remained enslaved by the family were at times subject to physical abuse, as the conversation with Dr. Kerner will attest. Neither Jefferson nor his descendants, save those like Ellen who moved north to states where slavery had been abolished, would fully divest themselves from active participation in the slaveocracy. And even then, whether through their family connections or business interests, they may not truly have been as far from participation in enslavement as it might have at times appeared. That, however, is beyond the scope of this episode to examine. Beyond the lingering threat of financial insolvency, another constant concern for the Randolph family proved fatal in early 1826. Tom and Martha's oldest daughter, Anne, had suffered not just the trials of being married to a volatile and disreputable husband, but also, like her grandmother Martha and Aunt Maria, faced constant issues during childbirth. As noted by Kerner, quote, In her 17-year marriage, she... Anne had been pregnant 12 times, but had only four children who survived infancy. Anne routinely prepared for death as she approached childbirth. After prematurely giving birth to a baby boy in mid-January, Anne's health continued to deteriorate until she finally passed away on February 11th. The ailing family patriarch Jefferson managed to see his granddaughter prior to her demise, then a few months later joined her in the family graveyard at Monticello. On a brighter note for the family was the birth of two other children in 1826, the first children respectively for Ellen Randolph Coolidge and Virginia Randolph Trist. Having faced so many tragedies in Virginia that year, Martha was convinced to take her two youngest children and journey up to Boston in October 1826 to stay with the Coolidges so that she could see her new granddaughter while her children back in Albemarle worked on the preparations for the family's departure from Monticello so that the estate could be sold to pay Jefferson's debts. Martha's later days would see her shuttling between the Boston area, Washington, D.C., and the family remaining in Albemarle County in Virginia. Her later life would also be characterized by a constant struggle to obtain enough money to sustain her and the rest of the family. As described by Kerner, quote, The social, economic, and geographic fluidity that for many brought upward mobility signified a seemingly downward spiral for Martha. Her children, unlike her, would begin their adult lives without property in a world where their famous grandfather and once enviable gentry lineage would be less tangible assets than curiosities. Martha's time in Boston was initially a bittersweet experience as she struggled during her first six months to escape the sorrows that weighed on her heart. Ultimately, though, she would start to interact with others in the community and grow to appreciate the time with her family in this new environment. Tom Randolph, meanwhile, found work as part of a federal commission to survey the boundary between Georgia and Florida in 1827, thanks in no small part to friends of Martha who lobbied the Secretary of War on his behalf. During this time, he wrote letters to his family attempting to reconcile. While Tom returned to Virginia in June 1827, what had originally been intended as a short visit to Massachusetts had been extended, partly due to the influence of Martha's son-in-law, Joseph Coolidge, who, quote, plainly detested his father-in-law, adamantly opposed any sort of reconciliation between him and Martha and mounted a concerted effort to have Martha and her children remain permanently in the Boston area. Ultimately, though, beyond any feelings that she might still retain towards her husband, Martha realized that, legally, Tom had the upper hand over her. Should she seek a formal separation, Tom would, without question, be granted custody of their two youngest children, and Tom had made it clear that he would indeed take such steps if need be. Though ultimately deciding to return to Albemarle, Martha made it clear, quote, that their reunion would be on her terms. She was content to live simply, 
and she desired to live peaceably. Tom initially sought to establish a separate household, but finally agreed to take up residence in the North Pavilion of Monticello, which was, at this point, still in the family's control. Martha left Boston on May 1st, 1828, accompanied by some of her children, but her return to Albemarle would not be the reconciliation that either she or Tom had envisioned. By that point, Tom had fallen ill, and his situation deteriorated rapidly upon Martha's return to Monticello. Tom passed away at the age of 60 on June 20th, 1828. As noted by Kerner, upon Tom's death, quote, his entire estate consisted of some $600 worth of books, most of which he had obtained from Jefferson, and a horse appraised for $20. He did at least pass away in the company of his family and had an opportunity to work towards making amends with his eldest son, Jeff. For Martha, Tom's death meant a new phase in her life was beginning, and she had to determine whether it would be spent in Virginia or elsewhere. Since her father's death, Martha had toyed with the idea of opening a school, as had other women in the extended Randolph clan. While the idea had its benefits, she kept returning to the reality that such a plan would entail, quote, hard work and unrelenting responsibility. And as she was growing more advanced in years, taking on such a burden did not seem to be the wisest course of action. This did not mean, however, that she could not contribute towards academic endeavors, particularly those which also related to the historical reputation of her father. Jeff Randolph had worked to develop his father's papers into manuscripts, and Martha, along with her unmarried daughters Cornelia and Mary, quote, each devoted between five and eight hours a day in editing and finalizing the manuscripts during their last few months in Albemarle. With the manuscript off for publication and so many of her loved ones buried in the family cemetery, the fateful day came when Martha left Monticello, the estate that had been her home for so much of her life since her birth. As described by Kerner, quote, Martha's last visit to Monticello, and especially to her father's rooms, resulted in melancholy and stomach pains, afflictions she now increasingly suffered in times of stress or sorrow. She would, like her father had done, descend the mountain and make her way to the nation's capital to live for a time. Martha's son-in-law, Nicholas Trist, had obtained a clerkship in the State Department under the administration of John Quincy Adams in late 1828, and, despite the change in administration in March 1829, had managed to retain his position under the new president, Andrew Jackson, and his Secretary of State, Martin Van Buren. This feat was, in no small part, due to his connection to the revered late third president of the United States. And indeed, Martha would immediately be thrown into the Washington social circle upon her arrival with Margaret Bayard Smith, at this point an established grand dame in capital society, throwing a party in her honor shortly after her move, with the incoming Attorney General John Berrien in attendance, along with the family of Jefferson Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin. Martha was seen as a living link between the glorious Jeffersonian past and the Democratic Jacksonian present, and neither Martha nor the new administration were afraid to exploit it. Again from Kerner, quote, both Van Buren and Jackson assiduously courted Martha, inviting her to formal dinners where she invariably took precedence over all the other women in attendance. Martha would use this connection to secure appointments for family members, and ultimately, one of her younger sons, Meriwether Lewis Randolph, married into President Jackson's extended family. In the long run, neither of these connections nor the eventual sale of Monticello in 1831 would secure the family's finances. Meanwhile, Martha suffered the thought of her family being increasingly scattered across the geography of the United States that her own father had been instrumental in expanding. 
Martha served as a link between the various growing households of her children, dividing her time between the Trist in Washington, the Coolidge's in Boston, and the Randolph's in Albemarle. Despite her joy in spending time with so many members of her family, her displaced position was the result, in part, of the family's continued financial struggles. Martha had gone in with her son-in-law, Nicholas Trist, on the purchase of, quote, a spacious two-story house on 8th Street Northwest, not far from the White House, in Washington in June 1833. But due to issues with Trist's transition to a new position as U.S. Consul in Havana, Cuba, the family quickly found itself under financial strain. As part of her response to this, Martha sold two enslaved individuals that month, but even after taking out bank loans, continued to struggle to pay her expenses. In January 1834, she would suffer yet another loss, this time in the form of her son, James Madison Randolph, who passed away suddenly and unexpectedly at the age of 28. From Kerner, quote, James's death profoundly affected Martha, who blamed herself at least in part for her son's demise. In yet another calamity in the family's continued descent into financial disaster, James had lost his small farm just prior to his demise. As Kerner notes, quote, Despite Jeff's status as the family's financial steward and nominal head, Martha held herself responsible for keeping her family intact, and her inability to do so hurt her deeply. Finally, on October 9, 1836, while on the final days of a visit with Jeff and his family in Albemarle, Martha came on with a sudden headache and, from the description of her daughter Virginia, quote, she fell limply forward, her face having turned a blue shade. Ultimately, Martha Jefferson Randolph would die in her son Jeff's arms and be buried with so many loved ones lost over the years in the graveyard at Monticello. As regular listeners of this podcast know, I like to explore the stories of those figures in history that are lesser known to the general public of the modern day. There is so much for us to unpack in the story of Martha Jefferson Randolph, and I am so thankful and grateful for the work of Dr. Kerner in doing so. This episode could not have been achieved without her scholarship. So to learn more, I highly encourage all of you to seek out a copy of her book, Martha Jefferson Randolph, Daughter of Monticello, as well as all of her works. The insight that she provides in the study of women and gender in early America is invaluable to the field, and I can only hope that this episode has done justice to her work as well as to the lives of all the individuals who have been discussed in this episode. I would also be remiss if I did not give my heartfelt thanks again to Nora for providing the intro quote for this episode and to our audio editor, Andrew Foncook, for his invaluable efforts. If you'd like to get his assistance with your podcast or next audio project, reach out to Andrew at P-A-N-K-A-C-E place, that's all one word, at gmail.com. The music sampled in the transition intro and outro for the interview was Bread by Lucrimbo. Links for more information on the efforts of all of these amazing individuals can be found on the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. The website is also your source for a wealth of information about all the presidents to date, as well as past episodes of this podcast and information on how you, yes, you, dear listener, can help support our efforts. A critical way that you can help support presidencies is through rating and reviewing the podcast if you're on a platform that allows you to do so. You can also share information about the podcast either online or through word of mouth to friends and family members who may be interested in presidential history. In addition, you can support presidencies by becoming a patron of the podcast through Patreon. I cannot thank our patrons enough for their feeling that this project was worthy enough to contribute towards, and they are an instrumental part of team presidencies. If you'd like to send me an email, I'm available at presidencies podcast 
all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can connect with me through social media. I'm on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. Again, all one word. Last but not least, on this litany of thanks, I can't thank you enough for listening. This is an amazing journey to be on in exploring presidential history, and I'm glad to be on it with all of you. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.